Okay. Cart Galore, Cordia Galere, Falsi Arash. Falsi Arash for the third um, keynote address. Uh, to be followed by a Q&A with the, the day's three keynote speakers. Um, okay, so now it's a great pleasure for me to introduce um, Bobby Balla. Bobby Balla was born in Dublin, and amongst his early professional pursuits, uh, the most intriguing, uh, for me at least, was the fact that he played bass guitar. And... Um, uh, for some years uh, in the 1960s and at the end of the day he sold his base he sold his base to a young man from Crumlin with the name Phil Linnett <laughs> who after learning to play Bobby's bass went on to international rock stardom as the leader of Thin Lizzy and Bobby meanwhile took up painting professionally with his first exhibition in Dublin in 1969 his work as a painter is represented in many important collections, including the National Gallery of, Gallery of Ireland, the Irish Museum of Modern Art, the Crawford Municipal Gallery in Cork, the Dublin City Gallery, the Hugh Lane, the Ulster Museum, and the Albrecht Durer House in Nuremberg, Germany. You can also see his work on the cover of our programme. As a graphic designer, Bobby has produced book covers, posters, 66 stamps for the Irish Postal Service, and the last Irish banknotes produced by the Central Bank of Ireland. He has also been an active campaigner for artists' rights and was the founding chairperson of the Association of Artists in Ireland. And in 1983, he was elected to the International Executive of the International Association of Artists, a UNESCO affiliate of over 80 uh, countries. In 1991, Bobby was elected chairperson of the National Organising Committee for the celebration of the 75th anniversary of the 1916 Rising. Also for 10 years, he chaired the National Executive of the Irish National Congress, a non-party political organisation working for peace, unity and justice in Ireland. Earlier this year, Bobby was a leading figure in the Citizens' Initiative to reclaim 1916 as a people-centred commemoration and a parade was held on the, on the main streets of Dublin on Sunday the 24th of April to dovetail with the day the rising began 100 years before. So please join me in welcoming Bobby Ballin. Good <laughs> Ta'an Ahasaram Abe on Shah, a Kainshliv Aram Akoid Tavakta Shah. I'm uh, delighted and honoured to be here talking to you on this special occasion. Uh, Colm O'Gorman, uh, the Executive Director of Amnesty International Ireland, recently wrote that we Irish are known for our love of words, for our verbosity, but for all that we are poor at having big conversations. When it comes to the big things, the issues that define us or make us uncomfortable, then we often become more hushed. Garrett O'Connor, the psychiatrist, 
whose speciality was the treatment of addiction, has argued that this reluctance by the Irish to face up to key issues is a direct consequence of our specific history. And to furnish a comprehensible explanation, he drew upon his own clinical experience. I'm a bit slow here because it's a bit dark. <laughs> uh, Garrett O'Connor suggested that um, children who are subjected to severe and prolonged abuse by parents or other authorities tend to internalize the abuse in the form of a behavioral syndrome characterized by pathological dependency, low self-esteem and suppressed feelings. He called this malignant shame and warns that as adults, shame-based children are likely to abuse their children in much the same way as they themselves were abused by their parents. Thus transmitting the syndrome of malignant shame to the next generation. He then went on to ask the question, could a similar process exist at the cultural level whereby prolonged political or governmental abuse of an entire population might be internalized as malignant shame by the institutions of society and transmitted unwittingly to subsequent generations in the policies and conduct of government, church, school and family. He concluded by indicating that there is reason to believe that such a cultural process has been endemic in Ireland for many centuries and that its destructive consequence of malignant shame, for example, low self-esteem, pathological dependency, self-misperceptions of cultural inferiority and suppression of feelings is a fundamental cause of contemporary psychological, social, political and economic economic distress in the country. Certainly, in the course of a troubled history, the 19th century proved to be an extremely unsettling and traumatic time for Ireland and the Irish people. It started off badly with the Act of Union of 1801, a measure designed to inhibit further rebellions like the one staged by the United Irishmen just a few years earlier in 1798. The Act abolished the Irish Parliament and transferred all power and control to London. Now even though the dissolution of the Parliament hardly represented a catastrophic blow to the aspiration for Irish democracy since only Protestants could stand for election, nevertheless its dissolution did represent a symbolic assault on Ireland's prestige and self-esteem. After all, 18th century Dublin, with its own parliament, had been recognised as the second city of the British Empire and boasted elegant Georgian squares, imposing public buildings and unique cultural events like the per first performance of George Handel's masterpiece The Messiah at Fishamble Street Music Hall, Dublin. However, after the Act of Union, focus gradually shifted to the imperial centre of London and Dublin consequently lapsed into a peripheral position, simply another provincial city amongst many within the United Kingdom. 
By 1841, the population of Ireland had expanded to over 8 million, and a sizable proportion of those, rural and impoverished, was sustained by the potato, the staple food of the poor. In the autumn of 1845, about one-third of the crop failed due to contagion by a previously unknown fungus. The Tory government in London attempted to alleviate the suffering with shipments of Indian corn, but by 1846 these shipments were stopped when the Tories were replaced in government by the Whigs, who were ideologically attached to the idea of laissez-faire, a belief that the state should not meddle in the economy and should leave market forces to determine the outcome instead. To make matters worse, the Whigs were ill-disposed to Irish Catholics, believing that the famine was a just punishment from a wrathful God for their sinful and rebellious attitudes. Charles Trevelyan, Treasury Secretary and the man responsible for famine relief in Ireland, wrote in 1848, the great evil with which we have to contend is not the physical evil of the famine, but the moral evil of the selfish, perverse and turbulent character of the people. In less than five years, one million people died from hunger, famine fever, typhus, dysentery and scurvy, and nearly two million, despairing of any future in Ireland, fled overseas. It was a calamity on a scale so vast that probably it would have overwhelmed any government, even one disposed to deal sympathetically with the problem. The Whigs were not. At best, they regarded the Irish as irresponsible, and the economic theory that they espoused made Britain rich while at the same time caused Ireland to starve. After the famine, many Irish questioned whether Ireland could ever be governed justly by the British. Even though they make up over 80%, made up over 80% of the population, Catholics owned less than 10% of the land and were forbidden by statute to practice law, to hold public office or to bear arms. Naturally, Irish Catholics were profoundly disheartened and they looked to Daniel O'Connell as their champion who worked tirelessly to liberate his co-religionists. Eventually, in 1829, the government in London conceded Catholic emancipation. This breakthrough not only recognised the basic right of Irish Catholics to openly practise their religion, but also, and more significantly, it encouraged Catholics of learning and ambition to strive for social and economic status. This determination, in turn, gave rise to a burgeoning Irish Catholic middle class. And like middle classes everywhere, the Irish variety would not remain satisfied with social and economic power alone, but would seek to achieve political authority as well. After Catholic emancipation, Daniel O'Connell's next objective was the repeal of the Act of Union. However, in spite of organising a mass movement in support of repeal, his campaign eventually petered out in the face of firm government opposition. Another campaign to re-establish an Irish Parliament was started in 1870. It sought home rule for Ireland within the United Kingdom, and significantly, this populist nationalist movement was transformed by Charles Stuart Parnell in the mid-1880s into a disciplined political organisation, the Irish Parliamentary Party.
1885 general election returned 85 Irish Parliamentary Party MPs, which gave Parnell the balance of power in Westminster, and he used this leverage to force home rule onto the British political agenda. Tragically, in 1890, Parnell's reputation collapsed on account of a sexual scandal, and as a result, the Irish Parliamentary Party split, and yet again, the possibility of home rule evaporated. Eventually, under the leadership of John Redmond, the Irish Parliamentary Party reunited, and in 1910, once again, they found themselves holding the balance of power in Westminster. But this time, despite serious opposition, they managed to get the Home Rule Bill passed in September 1914. Unfortunately, with Europe at war, the operation of the bill was suspended for the duration of the conflict. It must be said that Home Rule represented a decidedly modest goal for Irish nationalism. Admittedly, Ireland would have its own parliament, but it would remain within the empire and the king would still be the head of state. Also, as a consequence of the leadership of the Irish Parliamentary Party being a group of extremely conservative gentlemen, the Ireland they envisaged would involve very little social change, if any at all. For example, when the Parliament in London was debating the issue of women's rights, John Redmond, the leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, spoke at length against women's suffrage and then proceeded to vote against the proposal. And when the British government was considering modest welfare reform, like the introduction of old age pensions and the minimum wage, Redmond successfully lobbied against the introduction of such measures in Ireland. It's no surprise, therefore, that Home Rule, in spite of the passionate support provided by the gentlemen of the Irish Parliamentary Party, found little favour in the consciousness of the broad mass of the Irish people. Frank Hart, the great Irish song collector and singer, always maintained, and this is with apologies to historians here, he always maintained that the true story of a nation was to be found not in history books, but in the songs of the people. Well, the absence of any stirring ballads about home rule just about says it all. <laughs> no songs with titles like The Bowled Home Rulers or Gallant John Redmond to capture the imagination. However, if the majority of the Irish people displayed scant enthusiasm for home rule, there were others who were more than disturbed by the proposition. There was an immediate and violent reaction from a large minority the Protestant Unionists of Ulster. They pledged to defy the implementation of Home Rule by establishing the Ulster Volunteers and by importing arms illegally. In response, nationalists established the Irish Volunteers to defend Home Rule. It was the commencement of the First World War in 1914, however, that created a major distraction which temporarily absorbed the passions of both antagonists. Unwisely, in my opinion, in an effort to appease the British in the hope that they would honour their commitment to Home Rule, Redmond pledged 
the support of nationalist Ireland to the British war effort. This decision split the Irish volunteers. The majority went with Redmond and renamed themselves the National Volunteers. Many of them enlisted in the British Army and tragically, in the course of the imperial slaughter that was the First World War, almost 40,000 Irish nationalists perished. The minority retained the name the Irish Volunteers and within that minority there was a smaller minority, a secret organisation, the Irish Republican Brotherhood. They had entirely different plans for Ireland's future. For a start, they had no interest whatsoever in home rule. Their clear intention was to establish an Irish Republic, and they planned to do this by staging an armed insurrection against British imperial rule in Ireland. Despite internal disagreement, the rebels struck on the 24th of April 1916, when contingents from the Irish Volunteers, the smaller Irish Citizen Army, and Cumann seized a number of public buildings in Dublin. From the roof of the General Post Office in O'Connell Street, or Sackville Street as it was then, nominated as their headquarters, they hoisted the tricolour of the Irish Republic. And one of their leaders, Patrick Pearce, read out the proclamation of the Irish Republic within the front portico of the building. Against overwhelming odds, they held out for a week. An immense achievement, considering they began the hostilities with just 1,500 volunteers, whilst the British finished the week with 25,000 troops and massive firepower. And even though they surrendered to prevent further slaughter, they were, not, they were met with uncompromising retribution. Sixteen leaders were executed and 3,000 more were jailed, many of whom were non-combatants. The mood of the people slowly changed as they absorbed not only the brutality of the official reaction, but also the new vision for Ireland set out by the insurgents. After all, these people were not merely rebels, they were revolutionaries. They did not take on the might of the British Empire with the modest goal of superficial change, like the right to paint over the imperial red post boxes emblazoned with the crests of Victoria Regina and Eduardus Rex with emerald green paint. No, they were calling for a complete transformation of Irish society, and the blueprint for that transformation was set out in the proclamation of the Irish Republic, a document rightly belonging in the pantheon of human aspiration, alongside other exceptional documents like the Magna Carta, the American Declaration of Independence, and the Rights of Man by Thomas Paine. The proclamation is far more than simply a call to arms. It represents the articulation of a progressive program for an enhanced future for all Irish men, Irish women and Irish children. No wonder then, by the time of the general election of 1918, that nationalists had all but abandoned the Irish Parliamentary Party with their modest home rule plans for the far more tantalising dream of an Irish Republic. It was Sinn Féin, whom the British mistakenly blamed for the rising, that benefited most from the radical shift in public opinion. They won a huge majority of seats in the election, and instead of attending Westminster, the 73 ministers, or sorry, 73 members, decided to constitute themselves as Doyle Aaron, which met for the first time in Dublin on the 21st of January 1919. The British, for their part, declared the Doyle illegal, and this rejection 
led to a vicious guerrilla war between the Irish Republican Army and Crown Security Forces. Michael Collins, the Commander-in-Chief of the IRA, drawing on his experience as a young volunteer in the GPO during Easter week, which he disparagingly suggested had the air of a Greek tragedy about it, resolved to fight the British with entirely different tactics. To counter Britain's efficient network of spies and informants, Collins created an elite squad whose role was to assassinate British agents and undercover police. The mayhem created by the Twelve Apostles, as they were called, culminating in the events of Bloody Sunday in November 1920, would uh, eventually bring the British to the negotiating table. By the way, the assassination by the squad of a certain captain in the British Army was to have fascinating consequences. After the surrender in 1916, a group of rebels were brought under guard to the gardens of the Rotunda Maternity Hospital in Dublin. The officer in charge was Captain Percival Lee Wilson, who for whatever reason decided to humiliate several prisoners. On his instructions, the eldest, the oldest, Tom Clark, and his brother-in-law Ned Daly were stripped naked much to the surprise of the nurses working in the hospital and then uh, verbally abused before being court-martialed and finally executed. Now Lee Wilson's misfortune was that amongst the other prisoners watching this humiliation was a young Michael Collins who resolved there and then to take revenge if ever the opportunity arose. Some years later, in the course of the War of Independence, Captain Lee Wilson was transferred to Gorey County, Wexford, where he was spotted. And as a result, a hit squad was sent down from Dublin, and he was duly dispatched. His widow, Mary Lee Wilson, suffered a breakdown and was cared for by the Jesuits in Dublin. And in appreciation of their kindness, she left them her art collection, for many years, the paintings were dispersed throughout the Jesuit, Jesuit residence in Dublin and received little attention until, probably for insurance reasons, the National Gallery of Ireland was asked to examine them. One of the gallery's restorers singled out a particular painting for attention. He brought it back to the gallery, cleaned and restored it, and saw, slowly began to realize that it was not painted by a relatively unknown Dutch painter, but was probably a lost masterpiece, the taking of Christ by the Baroque master Caravaggio. After considerable research and investigation, this was proved to be true, and the painting has now taken its rightful place as the jewel in the crown of the Irish National Collection. The sporadic and at times brutal war between the Irish Republican Army and Crown forces lasted for two and a half years. Eventually a truce was called, which was followed by the Anglo-Irish Treaty of December 1921. The terms of the treaty were to have tragic consequences for Sinn Féin. Nobody was pleased with the treaty, but there were those who felt it was the best deal that could be achieved at the time, especially since rejection might signal a return to war. Others were adamant that the terms represented a complete betrayal of the legacy of 1916. Effectively, both Sinn Féin and the IRA were hopelessly split on the issue. 
This division reflected a fundamental ambiguity within Sinn Féin as a result of the party having to represent a far broader coalition of interests than it had a few years earlier. A short, ugly civil war followed. The anti-treaty forces or Republicans were defeated and the pro-treaty side won. Out of the ashes, a new state was born. From the very start, the aims and objectives of the new state were the opposite of those that might have obtained in the hoped-for republic of the men and women of 1916. In his book, Ireland, A Social and Cultural History, Terence Brown wondered... How a revolution fought on behalf of exhilarating ideals, ideals which had been crystallized in the heroic crucible of the Easter Rising, should have led to the establishment of an Irish state, notable for a stultifying lack of social, cultural and economic ambition. The answer, of course, was to be found in the social forces that came to dominate the new state. Naturally, the defeated Republicans, languishing at the political margins, played no part whatsoever in its formation. And elements of the left, who had helped formulate the democratic program of the first oil, were were similarly deemed irrelevant to the needs of the new state. It was the newly emergent Catholic middle class who were to take command of the new order. An order described by Terence Brown as one in which a conservative nationalist people, dominated by farmers and their offspring in the professions and in trade, believed that they had come at last into their rightful inheritance, possession of the land and political independence. According to Terence Brown, the Irish Irish Free State represented a social order largely composed of persons disinclined to contemplate any change other than the political change that independence represented. As early as 1923, at a Common meeting in Dublin, Common being the name of the political party in government, John Marcus O'Sullivan admitted that getting rid of foreign control rather than vast social and economic changes was our aim. And certainly Kevin O'Higgins, a government minister and a leading ideologue of the Free State, certainly had the clearest view of what the new society should be. In his book, The Irish Counter-Revolution, John Regan states that O'Higgins wants to integrate into the new regime his people, the risen Catholic nationalist middle class elite, which had emerged through politics and the professions in the 19th century and which had been swept aside at the moment of their inheritance by a Sinn Féin revolution. Clearly what O'Higgins was advocating was not continuity with the recent revolutionary past, but rather a rupture, a complete break, to be followed by the re-establishment of the pre-existing social and economic status quo. Meanwhile, the priests and hierarchy of the Catholic Church were observing developments with some satisfaction. In the past, they had consistently clashed with Irish revolutionary and radical movements, so the slow emergence of a conservative state from the ashes of revolution provided them with an essentially positive omen as regards their future relationship with the new state. Being obsessed with sexual continence, the bishops saw dangers everywhere and in a pastoral letter warns that the evil one is ever setting his snares for unwary feet. At the moment, his traps for the innocent are chiefly the dance hall, the bad book, 
the indecent paper, the motion picture, and the immodest fashion in female dress. Hence, they no, lost no time in making their political influence felt. One of the first pieces of legislation introduced by the new government was the Censorship of Films Act in 1923, to be followed some years later by the Censorship of Publications Act 1929. Now that act uh, saw every book of literary significance being banned from the bookshops in Ireland. Terence Brown wrote that the greatest crime perpetrated by censorship was not the undoubted injury done to Irish writers, nor the difficulty experienced by educated men and women in getting hold of banned works, but the perpetuation of cultural poverty in the country as a whole. However, far more significant in terms of the future relationship between the Catholic Church and the new Irish state was the abdication by the new government from the responsibility of providing adequate welfare for many of its citizens. Now, whether this was due to economic constraints or lack of interest is a mute point, but this obvious neglect allowed the Church to step in and provide much-needed services, particularly in the spheres of health and education. The consequence of this over-reliance by the state on the church has proved to be far-reaching. Indeed, since as well as providing services, the church felt free to impose strict Catholic rules and regulations in the many schools, hospitals and institutions under its care. And distressingly, as we discovered much later, many vulnerable children were exposed to the dangers of clerical sex abuse. Perhaps, however, the most dispiriting practice by the Free State was its unwillingness to innovate. For example, when it came to the formation of institutions for the new state, invariably the government chose to imitate rather than originate. For instance, instead of drawing upon the experience gained, gained by Republican or People's Courts during the War of Independence, the new state instead opted to embrace the British system of justice with all its symbols of privilege. For example, a supercilious phraseology uh, together with judges and lawyers festooned in multifarious wigs and gowns. This unfortunate tendency became so endemic in Irish life that the writer Sean O'Tuma felt inclined to write in 1972 that one has only to think for a very brief moment of the various aspects of Irish life today to realise that as a people we have few ideas of our own, that our model in most cases is still the English or sometimes American model in business, science, engineering, art, architecture, medicine, industry, law, homemaking, agriculture, education, politics and administration from economic planning to PAYE, from town planning to traffic laws, the vast bulk of our thinking is der derivative, end of quote. About the same time, the writer and artist Brian O'Doherty coined the phrase doppelganger provincialism in the context of culture to characterize that same compulsion to imitate rather than originate. After all, what other explanation can there be for the monotonous habit of not adequately recognizing talent in Ireland before it has been acclaimed by others in foreign centers of culture? This need for approbation by others, considered however unconsciously as superior, represents without question the pathology of low self-esteem and self 
self-misperceptions of cultural inferiority. Another embarrassing habit is our rush to adopt famous international figures with the slenderest connection to Ireland in the forlorn hope that some of their glory might rub off on us. In the case of the English painter Pat, uh, Francis Bacon, who happened to be born in Dublin, the response of the Duke of Wellington being, to being questioned about his Irishness is singularly appropriate. He said, being born in a stable does not necessarily make one a horse. <laughs> Worst of all, however, is the predisposition by many local Irish commissars, commissars of culture to elevate and promote only those curators based in Ireland whose work most closely represents, resembles the latest international fashion at the expense of genuine local talent that, on the other hand, is acutely responsive to the contemporary Irish condition. Without doubt, the enthusiastic endorsement of local artists who practice a provincial variant of the latest international success is fully indicative of low self-esteem, pathological dependency and self-misperceptions of cultural inferiority, all key elements in the syndrome malignant shame. Of course, malignant shame doesn't just impact on cultural activity. Sadly, it, is, it seeps into most aspects of Irish life. Certainly, the inadequate response by Irish, the Irish leadership to the catastrophic collapse which followed the disastrous bank bailout of 2008, without question, was greatly influenced by aspects of malignant shame. Our poor leadership seemed to approach the negotiations over our very future with simply one weapon in their armory, appeasement. The best boy in the class approach. They kept insisting that since we were good Europeans, then undoubtedly our European masters would respond to our humiliation with sympathy and fairness. Their actual response was the complete opposite. Politicians and bureaucrats in Brussels, viewing the Irish position as one of weakness, took advantage and imposed the severest of burdens on the Irish people. We now know that the bailout of Irish banks was imposed in order to guarantee that European banks, especially German state banks, who foolishly lent colossal sums to private Irish financial institutions, would get their money back. Because of the ineptness of our poor leadership, ordinary Irish citizens will now be forced to bear an unjustifiable burden of unsustainable debt in perpetuity. Do you recall the boasts that our bank bailout would be the cheapest in the world and then how quickly it turned into the most expensive bailout in history? What self-deception. But then victims of malignant shame rarely recognize that they have the condition themselves. More recently, the unseemly rush by both government and opposition to appeal the decision by Europe to compel Apple, one of the wealthiest corporations in the world, to reimburse Ireland to the tune of 13 billion for unpaid tax liabilities can only be comprehended as another example of the pathology of malignant shame. Especially when at this time the state appears to be either unable or unwilling to provide adequate health care to prevent unnecessary hardship or even death being experienced by many of its citizens. Well, what can we do? 
Looking back, I believe that 100 years ago, a window of opportunity opened and for five brief years, there was a real chance for us to reimagine our Irish identity, to become more comfortable with ourselves and with others, and to break the cycle of malignant shame once and for all. Unfortunately, that window of opportunity slammed shut in 1922 with the establishment of a state, and here again I quote uh, Terence Brown, notable for a stultifying lack of social, cultural and economic ambition. Today, as the centenaries of momentous historical events like partition, the establishment of the first doll, the war of independence, the civil war and the foundation of the free state beckon, I believe that we must use these unique opportunities to begin a national conversation about the big issues, the issues that define us, are make us uncomfortable so that we might start the process of change through revealing our faults and weaknesses and perhaps some of our virtues as well. Gurumila Mahagwif.